Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. There's been a long-term dispute between some employers who attempt to declare segments of their workforce to be independent contractors and workers' compensation carriers and state and federal governments to obtain additional premium or tax revenue. The argument of out-of-state employers who perform services in California was weakened by a new Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals case this week. EGL, the employer in the case, is a global transportation, supply chain management, and information services company headquartered in Texas. EGL operates through a network of over 400 facilities located in 100 countries. One of the many aspects of EGL's business is domestic delivery services. They were sued by three of their truck drivers who were residents of California. The three drivers signed employment agreements with EGL, which stated they were independent contractors. Despite these agreements, the drivers filed a complaint in California Superior Court alleging that they were EGL employees who were deprived of benefits mandated by the California Labor Code. They sought unpaid overtime wages, business expenses, meal compensation, as well as other relief, including statutory penalties. The California Labor Code confers certain benefits on employees that it does not afford independent contractors. The case was removed to federal court and summary judgment was granted in favor of the employer. The drivers appealed the decision to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, who reversed the lower court. The Court of Appeals found it was inappropriate to have granted summary judgment since there were triable issues of fact about the employment relationship to be decided by a jury. The court applied California law, which provides that once a plaintiff comes forward with evidence that he provided services for an employer, the employee has established a prima facie case that the relationship was one of employer-employee. The burden then shifts to the employer who may prove, if it can, that the presumed employee was an independent contractor. The Supreme Court of California enumerated a number of markers of an employment relationship in S.G. Borello & Sons Incorporated versus Department of Industrial Relations. The Federal Court of Appeals used Borello criteria in justifying a remand of the case for trial. The Court of Appeal found that an appeals board order requiring further diagnostic studies was inconsistent with a finding of permanent and stationary status. Here's what happened. Michelle Livengood, a former park aide for Mount Diablo State Park, suffered injuries to multiple body parts. She has had a complex course of medical treatment. In 2008, the employer petitioned to terminate her award of temporary disability indemnity based on an opinion of Dr. Pang, its orthopedic QME. Her treating physician, Dr. Naraji, and a neurological QME disagreed. Both claimed that her condition remained at TTD and that she needed several diagnostic studies. 
the ALJ found the claimant to be TTD and ordered further diagnostic studies, but rejected the request for a neurological consultation. After this award, the applicant underwent further diagnostic procedures. The worker appeared to have abnormal MRA studies of her neck and brain, then necessitating further follow-up by a neurologist. The employer then filed a second petition to terminate TTD. In 2009, the ALJ now ordered an evaluation and treatment by a neurologist, but concluded the worker was no longer TTD. The petition to terminate liability for temporary disability was granted. The WCAB denied reconsideration. The Court of Appeal, in an unpublished opinion, concluded that the ALJ's opinion reached inconsistent conclusions. After remand, the ALJ was ordered to clarify whether his authorization for a neurological consultation was for a diagnostic purpose. If he finds it was diagnostic, he must conclude the worker's condition is not permanent and stationary. If the ALJ finds that the purpose of the neurological consultation was not diagnostic, his prior conclusion that her condition was permanent and stationary was proper. A WCAB panel decision ruled that the statutory AME-QME scheme does not apply to subsequent injury cases. Here's what happened. Susan K. Moyers was employed by the Council on Aging when she suffered cumulative injury to multiple body parts. She resolved the case against the employer and the state fund by way of a CNR. She then filed an application for benefits from the Subsequent Injuries Benefits Trust Fund. She then scheduled a med legal exam with an evaluator of her choice, and the Benefit Trust Fund objected. She had previously been evaluated by an AME, and the Benefit Trust Fund claimed that she was required to return to the same AME for further evaluation. The WCJ overruled the objection and ordered that she could obtain a medical legal evaluation without returning to the same AME and that the Benefit Trust Fund was responsible to pay the costs. The Trust Fund filed a petition for reconsideration or removal on this issue. The WCJ issued a report noting that there are no statutes that specifically control the procedure for obtaining medical evidence in benefit trust fund claims. Labor Code sections 4060 through 4068 address only workers' compensation issues, not those arising out of, out of benefit trust fund cases. The procedure for subsequent injury claims stands outside the AME-QME process. The WCAB granted reconsideration to further study the legal issues. The WCAB found that Section 4062.2 and the other statutes concerning the workers' compensation medical discovery process do not apply to claims for subsequent injury benefits. A prominent California applicant attorney was sanctioned for an inappropriate walkthrough order through the Van Nuys District Office. The worker, Alexander Houston, suffered an injury to his hip and legs 
as a result of cumulative injury. At a pretrial conference, the parties agreed to commence TD benefits and to withhold about $2,300 in attorney fees. A written request for 15% of PD advances was crossed out on the minutes of hearing of that conference. The matter was then taken off calendar. Later, a paralegal from the offices of Diana Sparagna secured an ex-party walkthrough attorney fee order from another judge for almost $13,000. The employer filed a petition for reconsideration, claiming that this order violated their right to due process of law. Applicant's attorney did not deny defendant's contentions, but explained that she inadvertently obtained the ex parte order and that it was a mistake. The WCAB issued a notice of intention to impose sanctions pursuant to Labor Code Section 5813. The WCAB noted that Regulation 10280-D2 requires that a petition for attorney fees be filed with proof of service on applicant and defendant. No such document was found in the file. Further, Regulation 10280-H has a specific provision to prevent judge shopping. When an attorney's previous request for approval has been denied, a walkthrough document must be presented to the same judge. The WCAB found applicant's attorney's explanation to be insufficient. Sanctions in the amount of $1,000 were imposed. And in financial news, the spotlight section of the WCIRB website contains timely workers' compensation information written for insurers, agents, brokers, and policyholders. The July article describes the eligibility criteria for experience rating modifications for small employers. California's workers' compensation experience rating system is a merit rating system that provides a direct financial incentive for employers to reduce work-related accidents. The insurance code requires that the experience rating system use the past insurance experience of an individual policyholder to forecast the relative cost of that policyholder's future claims. The code also requires that the experience rating system contain reasonable eligibility standards. Of the more than one half million insured employers in California, only about 120,000 are eligible to be experience rated. To be eligible, an employer must be large enough so that its past payroll and lost experience is sufficient to provide some predictive value of its future experience. If an employer is too small to generate enough credible historical experience, the application of experience rating to the employer may be detrimental. An employer may have relatively few employees and still qualify for experience rating if the pure premium rate for its classification is high, such as in carpentry or trucking. Conversely, employers in administrative areas operating in lower pure premium rate classifications may need many more employees in order to qualify. Effective January 1, the experience rating eligibility threshold is $16,300. The WCIRB article explains the calculations needed to make the determination.
And in medical news, there was a 6.5% growth in total pharmacy spending in 2009, according to a PMSI annual drug trends report. The increase was based upon a 4.7% increase in prescription prices and a 1.7% increase in utilization. The main influence driving prescription and drug price increases was a 6.3% rise in the average wholesale price. The report found that over 75% of the total drug spending and workers' compensation was associated with medications used for the treatment of acute or chronic pain. However, the use of narcotic analgesics for the treatment of new injuries decreased 7.8%, indicating that narcotic analgesics are being used less often as first-line agents to control pain. The report came from analyzing over 5 million retail and mail-order pharmacy transactions from 2007 to 2009. Substance abuse treatment admissions for non-medical use of prescription pain relievers have increased more than 400% over 10 years, according to a new government study. The proportion of admissions increased from 2.2% in 1998 to 9.8% in 2008. This rise was seen in all age, gender, race, and ethnic groups, as well as in people of all education levels and in all regions of the country. The non-medical use of prescription pain relievers is now the second most prevalent form of illicit drug use in the nation. The DWC will administer the next Qualified Medical Evaluator Competency Examination on Saturday, October 23rd. Physicians who wish to take the exam must submit a completed application for appointment as a qualified medical evaluator and a registration for the QME competency examination. Applications for the QME exam may be downloaded from the DWC website. Interested applicants may also contact the medical unit at 510-286-3700 to request an application by way of United States mail or fax. The application must be postmarked by September 9 in order to qualify for this exam. Qualified registrants will receive by mail a confirmation letter along with a candidate information booklet. In addition to passing this examination, a physician must also complete a 12-hour approved course on disability evaluation report writing. Typically, the QME examination is given twice a year in April and October. Due to an ongoing budget constraint, the Division of Workers' Compensation Medical Unit canceled the examination, which would have taken place last April. The October examination may give interested physicians the only opportunity to sit for the examination for another year. And in national and other news, California has both a state fund system along with competition from private carriers available to employers who need to provide coverage for workers' compensation claims. This is not the case in four states, including Washington, where private insurance is not available. Washington state employers are angry about the lack of competition. They have now qualified the issue for a public vote in the November election. 
Initiative supporters submitted more than 340,000 voter signatures to qualify for the election. The initiative campaign is led by the Building Industry Association of Washington, a trade group active in conservative politics. Insurers and other statewide business groups also are supporting the initiative. The opposing campaign is being led by the State Trial Lawyers Association and organized labor groups. If successful, the initiative would allow private insurance firms to offer their own plans in competition with a state-run system. Campaign leaders said they expect that the initiative will be embraced by an electorate that is struggling with a slow economic recovery and an unemployment rate above 9%. Labor officials argue that Washington's system protects workers better than a private one by forsaking profits. The second annual National Employer Healthcare Congress and Conference will be held in Los Angeles on September 20th through the 22nd. The Employer Healthcare Congress is expecting up to 2,000 attendees, up to 120 exhibitors, and 75 expert speakers. The Employer Healthcare Congress will feature a shared exhibit hall with four healthcare conferences, one of which is the Self-Funding Employer Healthcare and Workers' Compensation Conference. This is the first self-funded healthcare and workers' compensation conference to focus on employer groups. The self-insurance healthcare and workers' compensation industries are multi-billion dollar industries with almost half of large employers becoming self-funded. There is a shift away from offering fully insured benefits and towards self-insuring health care and workers' compensation. Some of the employers and benefit managers speaking at the conference will be from American Apparel, Ruby Tuesdays, Lowe's Companies, Black & Decker, Microsoft, and many more. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPod, or iPad by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us. Please check back again next week for more news.